Welcome to the Kinky Cast, a sexually explicit podcast. If you are under 18 years of age, stop the podcast now. This is episode 171 of our weekly exploration in the kinky world of BDSM and alternative relationships. Views expressed are not representative of the management of the kinky cast. We welcome guests with opposing viewpoints. Today, we bring you Dr. Dan and Dr. Peggy Sue as two MDs and a microphone, recorded at Frolicon. I'm Dr. Peggy Sue. I'm family medicine trained. I've always dealt with a lot of the random questions that interact with real life. And right now, I'm working at a hospital. And then my colleague, Dr. Dan, who is local. Yes, I am in Atlanta, if anybody is looking for a very much kink-knowledgeable physician. So I specialize in infectious diseases. Uh, yeah, I don't know why that, that puddle laughed. Like, <laughs> like, infectious diseases, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm internal medicine, infectious diseases. I pretty much do straight-up infectious disease 24-7 now. My practice is we have enough business that we... Just do infectious disease. So my internal medicine, my internal medicine is lacking, to say the least. Uh, for our science of subspace panel tomorrow, I'm looking at all these things on, on anatomy and, and nociceptors, and I'm like, oh, medical school, you were so long ago. <laughs> oh, this is hard. This stuff is hard. And I, I, I'm just oh, I'm terrified about that. Anyway, so yeah, I've been in practice here for four years. Um, I'm based out of. Um, one of the hospitals here in downtown Atlanta, and uh, specialize specifically in uh, healthcare for people out that are in the LGBTQI initial, initial, initial lifestyle, BDSM kink, and uh, trying to decrease the amount of STDs in Atlanta by doing aggressive screening of high-risk populations and and treating. So and that's sort of my mission. People, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and a big part of what I do is. Slow medicine, which is great, which is what I've always wanted to do. Taking time to educate and explain with patients, answer all the questions, but you know, also make sure that they really have a good understanding of what's going on. You get much better outcomes with that, that way. So a lot of what I do is HIV treatment. So. so we do two MDs and a microphone, which means we'll come and we'll talk if you don't ask questions. But mostly it's about what you want to know. Yes. Um, because you have two MDs on the stage and... You the, can ask us whatever. The whole so. point. The whole point of this class is there's. You may have had a situation like I wish I could ask a doctor this question, and then you end up going to like WebMD instead, which is never, never a good idea. Or, or let's let's go lower, Doctor Oz. No. Our disclaimer. Yes. Is that we're giving general medical advice. We're talking about rules of thumb, but if you have an issue that is dear to your heart and you need treated, we're not asking enough questions to actually treat you as an individual. So We are not forming a patient-physician relationship by sitting in front of you and talking in front of you so or we will you listening answer, to us at home on the podcast. We will answer any general questions um, as best we can. Yes. Uh, but... Just a little disclaimer that we're not individually treating people. Yeah, and when, when we don't know something, we will tell you we don't know. We're not. And there's a lot of kink stuff that has not been researched. <laughs> yes. Amazingly That's, enough. That, as we found out. Um, <laughs> and we will find out more tomorrow. You get for that from the NIH. Yeah. <laughs> except, except if you came to the, the uh, BDSM and the law, you'll know that all of this is illegal. So. Yeah. Sad. Sad, sad. What questions do you guys have? Because we, we have questions from earlier that we can talk about um, that we got on the FetLife forums, and then we will answer some audience questions. So it's always better with a kind of lively thing. If it's like too personal of a question, you can, we usually had something to write down, but you can come and whisper us selectively in our ears. It's the name of your podcast. Oh, I don't have a podcast. It's the Kinky Cast that records us at Frolicon, and I've done, I think, one solo one with them too. Good question. So we we uh, just give our services for podcasts. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. I have a question since you said you do the HIV treatment. Mm-hmm. How much? Uh, I'm assuming that you would also do you would also prescribe prep. How much does a month of prep cost? And how on earth could you ever convince 
a insurance company to pay for that shit. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> right. So it, a lot of it, a lot of it falls into doing prior authorizations and showing that you are a high risk individual. There are ways to get around it, though. So Fulton County soon is going to actually have a prep clinic where prep will, they will go by your income and it will be either free or very low cost. The other thing that you can do is... And define prep. Oh, sorry. Pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, Have any of you guys, uh, by show of hands, who has heard of prep? Wow. That's a... That's a good response. Okay, so current currently there's one medication indicated for prep that will be changing very soon, um, and that brings up so the medication for prep is Truvada. I'm sure you know. And, and what Truvada is is a component of an HIV regimen. It doesn't by itself treat HIV. Okay, it's it's a piece of the puzzle, as you say. If you get on PrEP, the important thing is it's not a, I take this every day and I never see my doctor again. Because you can still... I heard two but, cases confirmed. Right. Yeah. You can still you can still potentially get HIV, uh, which is the reason that we bring you in typically about every three months or so and, and do STD screening. So PrEP you take when you are about to be exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As when a, you as anticipate a, doing to... something high risk or having sex with a known HIV positive individual, um, those type circumstances. Right. I mean, the important thing to remember is that there's, there's two sort of forms. There's the pre-exposure prophylaxis and then there's post-exposure prophylaxis. Extreme. They're very different. You can't use PrEP for post-exposure prophylaxis. That actually requires a full HIV regimen. And we typically treat about 30 days for that. So some people will get themselves into a high-risk situation and then, you know, come to an ER afterwards. And you really want to maximize the efficacy of it. You want to come within 24 hours. But the sooner the better. The sooner you realize something went wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then as far as the cost goes, there's a couple of ways, other ways you can get around it. Uh, like I said, currently there is one medication prep that is changing. Uh, so some, Groups and physicians, myself included, are doing studies. Um, and Mercer's doing a study. Sorry? And Mercer, I just heard, saw that yeah. Mercer was doing a study. Right. Yeah, we are too. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, we're, we're actively recruiting high-risk individuals. At this, t- at this time, our study is only focusing on men who have sex with men and transgender women. But it, eventually, it may open up to other high-risk individuals. So that is one way you can potentially get your medications for no cost. Lab work, no cost. MD visits, no cost. And they typically will provide you with some sort of compensation for your parking, gas, etc. So looking into medical studies for PrEP, especially now because there are several things coming down the pipeline for PrEP, uh, including injectables, which makes me very happy that I can get that compliance of using an injectable. So if you use an inject, this is not like an insulin injectable. This would be a medication that you can inject and it would last two or three months. And, and, and part of the reason why we like that kind of thing is someone comes to us, they say they need something and we don't have to worry about them changing their mind before they get to the pharmacy. <laughs> right. We can just <laughs> they say they want it. give it, it's done and you don't have to worry about compliance. So Or not affording it if it's right, right there where you're right. getting mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as getting prep, if you need it, and you are, you know, if you really do think you're a high risk individual and you would benefit from prep, finding a doctor that you can trust to talk about it and be open and honest will really help get it covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we can we we can essentially document in a way to say this is why this person needs to be on prep. That way, if your insurance company. Uh, rejects it, we can <laughs> fill out a prior authorization and say, look, for X, Y, and Z reason, this person needs to be on there. But one of the drawbacks is physicians are people too. Um, and just like every person out there, um, they may not be kink aware. Sure. And they may not be as understanding in getting people the treatment they need. Right. Um, so if you ever go to a doctor and you're not getting the treatment you feel like you need or you're, you're getting things overlooked, keep pushing. Because unfortunately, medical school training gets trained in drugs and things like that, but we don't necessarily get trained in how to talk to people about sex. 
and things of that nature that are kind of important. Um, and so if you're not getting the treatment, um, if, if the doc isn't responding to what you say you need in some way and giving you appropriate feedback, um, keep pushing. Either yeah. that doc or someone else. Yeah, and I mean, a good starting point, although it's a little dismal when you see how few people, is, is looking at the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. They do have a professionals uh, link on there that you can find professionals. Both of us are, are on there and maybe a couple other physicians in the southeast. But, um, you know, if you're not based in Atlanta, you may be able to find one in your area. That would be either kink aware or kink knowledgeable. But you can try any of the physicians because a lot of people aren't comfortable with bringing it up. But if you bring it up, they they generally want to help people. Yeah, it's just how many barriers are between that. Right, and then you know, take, if you can take the time to explain to your physician. A lot of them are open and knowing. You just have to explain it to them, um, and say like it's just like Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Secretary? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they haven't. <laughs> they haven't. No. I actually had one whenever I was put on um, uh, blood thinners for life. And I looked at the doctor and I was like, you just killed my sex life. What can I do? Mm-hmm. She's like, you don't do that anymore. Oh. Oh. That's not you can't no, you are not going to subject yourself to trauma. No. And so yeah, you, sometimes you gotta keep pushing because doctors are people too. All the good parts and bad parts. Right. Absolutely. And you know, everything we do in, involves risk. That's what's important to remember. Everything in sex and BDSM involves some element of risk. Uh, There is no such thing as a perfectly safe sex. There is no such thing as a perfectly safe scene. Um, Things can go wrong, and you have to to be aware of the consequences and know how to deal with it. And if you do it long enough, it will go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's important to have a good kit (laughs) as well is a good segue. So, So, um, for people who've ever seen things go wrong... Um, some things that you might want to consider having on hand. Yeah, and you can always come up here and, and take a look at our massive box. For anyone who forgets and wants any, <laughs> um, we have condoms. Uh, so, some of the things people don't always think about. Uh, number one is cleaning anything um, year-round because it's not just sexually transmitted infections. Just like gym equipment. Any equipment exposed to skin and bodily fluids can carry a lot of things. So making sure you have things around that will actually sanitize things like bleach, um, peroxide, alcohol, um, chlorhexidine's great, um, although flammable. Flammable. (laughs) So if you're doing, yeah. So anything with electricity or flames, you don't want chlorhexidine. Yep. Um, And just let it dry Yes. Right, right. No active electricity and flames around wet chlorhexidine. Right. Which is awesome, though, because it doesn't stain anything. Um, Uh, Yeah, a simple method is, you have these in our hospital, in your hospital, we have in our hospital, are these, uh, you can get them on Amazon, these large containers, they're they're sandy wipes, and they they have different colors. Uh, The orange container is a a bleach-based one. Purple is this very long and alkyl... Chloride. chloride. Yeah. It, you got it. Yes. Uh, the important thing to remember, though, is on these, they have a, a surface kill time. Uh, and to make sure that you're not just immediate, just wiping it down and then going to it. So with bleach, it's three minutes. With the purple top, um, it's five minutes. Uh, so make sure that you're looking at that. Um, and anything that had anything to do with rectal play, anal play, um, some of those things uh, form spores that don't necessarily die. So friction is your friend. Um, sudsy things are your friend. Yeah, see that um, you're referring to. Yeah. yeah, so things like Clostridium difficile, which causes diarrhea and things like that. Um, anything that's rectal, you may want something that has a little bit more friction and sudsing, um, which is also why, you know, hand washing still works great. Um, and 
in place with all these chemicals in the world, you still need some friction sometimes. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Angles remind mm-hmm. me of that. <laughs> uh, HPV. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of concern about HPV. Uh, just assume bisexuality for a minute and and the risk of HPV. I know that there's some talk about testing men for HPV, but there's not been a really good test. Is there a good test for HPV out there for men? <laughs> does insurance pay for it? Okay. Yeah, so the, the listeners at home can't see me vigorously nodding my head. But yeah, so um, practitioners will do anal paps. And so that's something I do with my population, which is mostly MSM. So, But uh, not all places do that. Right, not, right. And most training of doctors does not include that. So most right, regular right. So primary a, care, if you mentioned do doing an anal anal pap, they may or may not know what you're talking about. So where do we go? So in our local community in Greenville, South Carolina, we would talk to an infectious disease doctor. Yeah, I would look for an infectious disease doctor, and you can call up there and say specifically, hey, look, um, you know, this is what I'm potentially at risk for. I think I may require... And you can ask your primary care to see if they do anal paps, because pretty much... That'll tell you yeah, whether I, or not they're experienced with it. Yeah, it, it doesn't... You just need to have the right prep fluid, a little cytobrush, <coughs> and your lab has to be able to process the specimen. So basically, it's like a regular pap smear for women. It's just getting the tissue from a different place. Right, right. And so, yeah, we, we look for... There, there's different types of HSV. There's high-grade HSV, which is more likely to get carcinoma. H- so, HSV H- or HPV? H- oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> HPV. <laughs> Sorry, HPV. Um, and so if you're in one of those higher sure. risk groups, it could like lighten. I know I'm in the age group over 30 that you could, you don't, the, the vaccine wasn't available at the time. Where right. You could still get it. People. And right. So I know they're recommending uh, HPV testing with PAPs for people over the age of 30. I don't think I've ever had that. I think my doctor just assumed that I wasn't. Playing, and I never had that until yeah. So recently. That, so, br- that brings up a very important point, something we talk about in our class every year. Never assume your doctor tests you for everything. And they did change the national recommendations on regular cervical pap smears recently um, to include HPV testing. Um, mostly they sell it on the, then you don't have to get paps as frequently. But the good news is, that means more people are testing for HPV, the high-risk types. Now, there are types that we don't right. test for, um, and there's still lots that we don't know. Right, right. So, so, so the question is, mm-hmm. do you vaccinate people that are older okay. for HPV? That's a very good question. <laughs> so if you look at what insurance will cover, is they won't cover it if you're over 26. Uh, however, you could potentially vaccinate and, and there's a reason why it's that is they they figure you will be sufficiently exposed after 26 that you know more than likely you will have been already exposed to high grade HPV or some form of HPV by that point. So the benefit isn't as high. However, in in some individuals, especially, uh, I've actually there are some case reports where people who have gotten the vaccines that have had recurrent uh, genital warts have had improvement in their symptoms. They're isolated case reports. It's not in stone. Uh, I personally have given people the vaccine, uh, and have, they have had improvements in their general lesions. But these are my own little small case series. This is not that's, fact. that's the ones that cause warts. The ones that cause the high right. grade cervical cancers. Sure. It, if you if you test positive for HPV and yeah. you are high grade, is there any reason to get uh, the vaccine? Uh, at that point, it becomes, I think, a little bit more in your interest to get. I'm sorry, in your interest to get screened uh, from a, either a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon. And I will say, in Tennessee, I could never get it affordable for anyone above the age of 26. Right. I missed the last dose. I got. I think I started exactly when I was 26 in the Navy, mm-hmm. and I got out and I never got the last dose. And so I just kept bitching and moaning until the VA gave it to me. And they gave me the whole series again. 
didn't, they didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> HPV vaccine is going to save a lot of lives um, uh, from cervical cancer and, and general cancers. Yeah, what's up? Uh, HPV and throat cancers. Yes, of course. Uh, a huge Douglas. Count. Yeah. Michael Douglas, right? Does, does vaccination after age 26 mm-hmm. make sense for protecting against throat cancers? Secondary yeah. to HPV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this again is going to be not published data um if i if i was high risk i would certainly consider it but there is no we know for sure answer right um because unfortunately most studies that study the vaccine they're interested in getting the vaccine out which means they don't tend to study special interest groups um or groups that aren't considered mainstream um, and even though as widely popular as oral sex and anal sex are, it's still in the mm-hmm. literature not as well researched. Mm-hmm. And if you are if you are going to get Gardasil now, um, I would go for the it's called Gardasil nine, the nine valent HPV vaccine, uh, which is sort of the updated version. But you can always talk to your physician and see which version they have. So. Yes. When you say you can't get it affordable, it's not covered by insurance. How much does it cost? Uh, it's a little over three hundred dollars a dose, and you need three doses. Okay. So no, some people the will cheapest, have it. The, the, the cheapest I think I've seen it has been five to six hundred for the series. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's not small change. Right, right. A lot of people are. Like, mm. A lot cheaper than cancer. That's true. Absolutely <laughs> right. Absolutely right. So how would you talk? a doctor into that. I mean, I tried, mm-hmm. it came out when I was like late thirties and my doctor was just like, you know, she's like, no, you're too old. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. If, if you, yeah, if you say, look, I know the evidence may not necessarily be there, but you know, I'm willing to pay for it. I'm willing to give it a shot. So. And in that case, try and get a referral. Yeah. So that other other physicians will do it. So. I mean, I'm I'm in rural area, um, and unfortunately, I'm very well aware of some of the limitations in rural areas. Yeah. <laughs> um, because when I was teaching people training to be family medicine docs, evidently I got the reputation for being the one to go to with all the weird sex questions, which happen to be any sex questions. Um, so <laughs> it's. In some areas, people just don't know. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, oh, uh, other stuff you want to make sure you have in your in your kit, um, which we don't have everything here. But yeah, safety shears are an amazing thing to have. And these are the trauma shears that will cut through denim, cut through rope, and you can run it next to the skin um, because you never know when you will suddenly need to get someone out of something. Yeah. Um, whether they start to swell whether and have trouble breathing, whether they freak out, or whether or not just random things happen, the cops are coming. I don't care. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to get out of things quickly. Yeah, you know, I, I heard something this morning that I thought this would be a really great addition to any dungeon kit, and if these are universal, is handcuff keys. Um, universal. They are not universal. Okay, that's good to know. All right. However, a lot of keys fit a lot of handcuffs. Is that right? This is true. Yeah, so a lot of keys fit a lot of handcuffs. There is no universal handcuff. Yeah, so, yeah, have uh, potentially have handcuff keys. Or tin snips. Right? I was going to say, I just Gotcha. And it's always, if so cutting off metal, metal is reasonable. Like all yeah. possible keys for handcuffs, that would be able to sell Excuse me. Yeah. No, not all handcuff keys are uh, universal. However, all major manufacturers of handcuffs, uh-huh. like Smith & Wesson, Command, uh, Gauls Hayes, all of your major American manufacturers have standardized their keys mm-hmm. so that any law enforcement agency can use others. Now, if you're buying them from Japan, mm-hmm. Pakistan, etc., if you're buying foreign-made, yeah, the keys are going to be a little bit wonky. 
but all American-made fit each other. That's excellent. Yeah, so that may be something you want to consider in your kit. And then also, if you have someone in your in your group that is uh, BLS, Basic Life Support Certified, is excellent to have in case there is an emergency. So making sure that you have uh, equipment also because to do it. Because if your only CPR person is the person having a problem... Do you don't want to be YouTube and how to perform CPR? Oh. <laughs> That's never. They're like, hold on, it's buffering. Hold your breath. Um, That's supposed to do what? Stay alive? Yeah. Um, glucose tablets. Yes. If someone's suddenly not acting right, um, a lot of people have sugar problems, and a lot of people haven't seen their doc in. A long time and don't know they have sugar problems. Yes, <laughs> hydration, glucose tablets, um, and EpiPen. So, ask your doctor uh, to prescribe you an EpiPen. Say, hey, I have parties and people have bee sting allergies. That's that's okay. EpiPens are expensive. Um, yes. Um, I was doing. Sorry, uh, somebody brought up something interesting in the rope one, in the beginners rope panel this morning about using uh, jute and hemp ropes mm-hmm. is that a lot of people have grass allergies and that will trigger huh. in them. Yeah, so having an EpiPen could be beneficial, but if you want to have the poor man's EpiPen, uh, having some Benadryl on hand may not be a bad idea either. And chest pain? But if pain, they have throat swelling, aspirin. good luck. You want aspirin. Um, because heart attacks happen no matter what you're exerting yourself doing. Um, so, um, and then various bandages, um, just for the random things, especially having stuff on hand that if someone were to get injured, you can keep that blood exposure and they may be able to keep playing. Um, something that can seal stuff up or cover it up. Um, like if anyone has kids, if you're playing football in a high school, you can't have any blood on the field. And so what they do is generally just duct taping it. Um, it's not the best for the cut. Oh, um, Durabond or superglue is. But having glue. stuff that if it's not going to kill your scene completely, that you can still keep track of everyone's safety. That's right. Um, because you don't want anyone getting Tiger exposed arms. when they didn't expect to get exposed. Right. You had a lot of questions. So, oh, go ahead. Um, question on like blood circulation for uh, people that like to do either tighter rope or do arm binders or tight cuffs on the upper arms. Because I know the major artery is on the inside of the arm, mm-hmm. and it's very easy to pinch. Right, um, and you much, can pinch their brachial plexus too, and, and cause injuries that way. Um, so, so I guess my question is, what what can you do to if you still want to participate in that sort of sure. slightly higher risk yeah. um, play? What are some things that you can do to try to make sure that you're not going into the damaged territory. Right, right, right. I mean, you always have that risk. That's important to remember. But I think using more anchor points and trying to offload some of the weight onto other points as well, Mm -hmm. diffuse the weight load, may be lower your risk. And if you ever stop feeling pain, no matter what the injury, that's a bad thing. Absolutely. Um, No matter what we're talking about, burns, blood circulation, whatever. If you stop feeling pain, that's a bad thing. Right. And, you know, talking with your bottom frequently, asking them about any sensations, tingling sensations, things like that. You may be causing nerve damage uh, if they're describing like a tingling sensation, cold sensation, numbness. And at that point, you may want to stop the scene or readjust. If somebody suffered nerve compaction or nerve damage, is there anything that you can do immediately? Immediately? Uh, undo whatever caused no, it. No, after that. Um, in general, it's going to depend on how bad it is. Yeah. Um, but the biggest thing is just making sure that there is no strain on that area anymore and then figuring out if there's other things you need to do to prevent swelling and things like that. Ice and ibuprofen is the suggested right now. So you want to take as much swelling off as possible. Right. And if you can get to a doctor, steroids also have a role. Hmm. Yeah, so you want to minimize anything pressing against that area, whether it's your body pressing against it or equipment. Cool. 
any more? We can answer some of the questions from online, I guess, if those folks. Do you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, so I heard there was a HSV vaccine in some kind of trial. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was looking at it right before I came down here. So I'm like, I know I'm going to ask a question about it. So there's... there's And HSV being herpes. Right, absolutely. Um, There are different types of vaccinations. There's preventative vaccines and there's therapeutic vaccines. And when you look at how the sort of treatment modality of how HSV will probably be treated or cured. Uh, same with HIV is going to be one of these therapeutic vaccines. So these are vaccines that you give to people that already have the disease. And so the, the HSV vaccine uh, that's being developed right now, that a couple different people are developing right now, uh, the way it works is it stimulates uh, these types of white blood cells, B cells and T cells to recognize HSV and more aggressively come after it. The problem, the problem with herpes simplex, though, is that it lies dormant in the um, the nerve roots of your spine. So it, it becomes kind of a two-step problem of, you know, how do you make your body, or how do you sort of reactivate it so that your body can then recognize it and attack it? HIV, Be- HIV has the same problem. Because those tend, to, those tend to be places your body ignores. Right, right. The fact that it can kind of go silent for a while makes it very difficult to eradicate it, which is why we haven't seen a cure yet for herpes or HIV. So the way that you tackle this problem is may even involve making the disease kind of come out, you know, having symptoms, and then giving these medications that cause a bolstered immune recognition response. So there isn't anything currently available as far as a therapeutic vaccine for HSV, but it is still in trials and being worked on. And same with HIV. And testing for herpes? Oh, man. <laughs> herpes is the bane of my existence. So <laughs> there, there was, a, there was a, a Facebook thread that was driving everyone up the wall. Um, when you go to your doctor, you say, like we said, I got tested for everything. More than depending on who your doctor is, they probably won't test you for herpes, at least not anymore. And there's quite a few that won't test you for HIV. Well, Tennessee's still a backward state to where you have to sign consent to get tested for HIV. Right. So, so in Tennessee, if you didn't sign let's consent, not get off, let's not get off track. You shouldn't test for herpes because the even if you do test for it and someone is positive. So this this gets to the issue of... Um, He's talking about blood tests. Right, right. Doing the blood tests for HIV, for HSV, which dis- discriminates between HSV1 and HSV2. Um, and the reason, the reason we don't do it is that it doesn't actually change people's behavior um, once they know it. And there is a possibility that you can get false positives with <coughs> HSV testing. Um, is there any sort of indications where it may be useful? Pregnancy, yes. Um, so, you know, if you're pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant, I think it's useful in that sort of case. Um, even if you do take the medications like, um, valacyclovir, which is Valtrex, which does decrease viral shedding, uh, you know, while you may not necessarily have active lesions, you still may be shedding active viral particles. The studies that have been done on this show that even though there is a decrease in the amount of shedding, you are still shedding. So now testing a lesion is a different story. Yeah, absolutely. You have a I mean, painful lesion that can be tested. Right. And especially if you might think about doing some of the medications that may decrease the shedding. Yeah. But not eliminate it. Right. Of the virus. So, I mean, uh, the responsible thing to do is if someone comes to you as, you know, as, as, as a physician to me is you just talk about it. You talk about the implications and, re- and a, a potentially positive test for someone who has never had lesions. So, you know, if they have recurrent lesions, yeah, you can, you know, test the lesions, et cetera. But um, some folks will then find out that they have been asymptomatic carriers or shedders and it, it can cause a lot of mental anguish. Without a clear answer, because it's not like we can give you something to fix it. Yeah, if you're not having if you're not having outbreaks, you're not going to be taking. So cycle there. With the 
velocivir, velocivir, all those. Is there any okay. kind of pre-exposure or post-exposure prophylaxis that those offer, or um, nothing? No, I mean we don't we don't typically give it for post-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and do you guys kind of know the difference between HSV one and two? Everybody know a couple. I see a couple of nodding heads, a couple of no's. Okay. So yeah. So in the U.S., the incidence of in sexually active populations, which I think they classified as fourteen to forty-nine, of HSV two. <laughs> I know it's like fifty. No more sex. Thirteen. Oh. Sorry, you can't be having sex. Fourteen to forty-nine. Get it on. <laughs> Get it on, kids. Uh, so the, the, the incidence, of course, of HSV-2 is less than HSV-1. In the U.S., it's, uh, the cumulative incidence of HSV-2 is about 18% now, uh, and higher in certain demographic groups. So you're more likely to get HSV if you are female, uh, to, if you're thinking of a... Uh, heterosexual relationship. Mucous membranes catch things easier. Right, and you're more likely to have breaks, things like that. So um, HSV-1 being much more common. Now you can get either HSV-1 or 2 in the general region, which is kind of a big misconception. People think HSV-1 is cold sores oral and HSV-2 is only general lesions. And while that may that is true a lot of the time, it is not necessarily <laughs> true all of the time. HSV-2 tends to reoccur more frequently and the outbreaks tend to be more severe. Um, you're also, there's also a higher incidence of meningitis with HSV2, something we call Mullerette's meningitis that we see every so often in young people when they come in with these meningeal symptoms and sometimes they have mental status changes, they're acting really weird. So if, if when so your body starts acting all crazy and they're normally not as crazy. So it's not always it may not just be a polydrama. weird thing when the doc, asks, the doc asks about your sex life when you come in for a headache and acting funny. So. But you can still get it at 50, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get immunity. God comes down there like, you haven't had herpes yet. Immunity. Because the that would be awesome. Stop thinking about. I would. Yeah, I would stop being 50. an atheist if that was the case. Oh. <laughs> They're like Jesus comes down like my no, son. You've made it this far. Now go. Look <laughs> everything. <laughs> you're you're safe. There's lay your hands where. There's a lot of physicians who really stop asking about sex after 50. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I don't, I don't get that. You said that we didn't have any sexual education. Or we went to the same medical school. We were in the same time. And we got a lot of sex ed. We got, like, how to ask your patients, like, go to your grandma, like, do you have anal sex? You know, we're, like, you need to ask everyone. <laughs> you told me to ask your grandma, I couldn't. Don't ask your grandmother. But, like, someone that would be your you grandmother. You should not be treating your grandmother. Yeah, treating your own family is, 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 is typically a bad idea. But, no, it's like, you can't make that distinction. You can't, you can't assume someone is not having anal sex, right? And I will Especially say, most people, GR, you know whether people are having sex or not, just asking them about it tends to make them happy. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, people don't usually they're like, get, "Oh, you think I might be having sex?" Nice. Yeah, I had like one. I have only had like one person recently that got mildly irritated that I asked them questions that assumed that they weren't faithful in their relationship, and it was only mine. They're like, "But look." What you have going on could be explained by these other processes. I would ask an 80-year-old person if they came in with these symptoms, these exact questions. And so you normalize it. And that's a, that's a big, a good tip. So a lot of this is normalization. So when you're trying to be honest with your physician and kind of coming out about who you are and what you do so that they understand the risk factors, that things that you may be at risk for, it's normalize it. Just normalize it. Say, you know, it's just like a 50 shades. Everybody's doing this. Every year when I go to my gynecologist, the first time I went to him, I said, well, he's like, well, do you want me running tests? I said, yeah, run them all. No. And I come back and, you know, and he's like, well, your blood pressure is this, your cholesterol is this. I said, no, where are the real tests? Mm -hmm. He said, oh. And he pulls me in the office. 
women of your age, I don't ask. Married women, I don't ask because I used to run all the tests and a woman cursed me out. So why do I need those tests? And I said, well, I'm Polly. I've got a girlfriend, a boyfriend, and a husband. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, come with me. Hey, I want you to run this test, this test, this test. So she knows for sure. And I was like, okay, we're cool now. Yeah. <laughs> so he no longer asked me, but he does what I want. But it was having a conversation with him yeah. that made him go the extra step. And, and he had, Cause he, got he was uncomfortable it. bringing it up. He got blasted on it before, so. Right, right. Customers can be dicks. Yes. yes. Oh, speaking yes. of which, who wants to see some dick pics? I think in Frolicon, everything's a segue to dick pics. Potentially. Potentially. All right, so what? mosaics out of it now. Can I see the picture of Donald Trump of highly made of dick pics? Yes, yes, I did see that. Isn't that every picture? Right? (laughs) We all need a little Adderall right now. One of the other things is uh, where I was talking about mucous membranes. Mucous membranes are the easiest to catch things. So things like unprotected receptive anal sex is one of the highest risk activities for anyone. Right. Oh, one of the questions we got were what, you know, someone is saying oral sex. That's safe, right? That's always safe. Oh Lord, no! No! no. Jesus, no! So, you uh, kill thousands of germs on contact if there was safe to be in your mouth. Yeah, this <laughs> would be the, the best-selling product in the world if it actually if it actually could completely reduce your risk of gonorrhea and, and chlamydia. Yeah. Right. Maybe you're uh, and it does. Interestingly, there has been a study recently that did show a, a decreased yeah transmission rate of gonorrhea and chlamydia with using. Listerine immediately afterwards. So it's not entirely wrong, but it didn't eliminate it. Yeah. So this is the really important thing when it comes to um, gonorrhea and chlamydia, okay, which is one of the big things that you think of when you think of pharyngeal infections that you can get from oral sex, okay? Uh, you may not have symptoms at all. And I, so my patients, I screen them. My high risk patients, my high risk um, men who have sex with men, I screen them. And the vast, vast, vast majority of the positives that come back had no symptoms. They had no idea. And, and some things about, like, gonorrhea, we have to test where we think it might be yes. occurring. Yes. As I like to say, so, swab everything that's participated or penetrated. That, so that is a, a, a phrase I got from a medical conference. If, if you're worried about throat gonorrhea, the urine test is not going to right. tell you. Right. Right. This is The urine test tells you about genital. Right. Right. You're, you have to be very specific with your physician because they may assume you are just heterosexual and having sex with your partner or your husband or your boyfriend. You know, I mean, whatever. So you have to be extremely specific on these things. And it, it, physicians don't get mad when you educate them a little bit. A little bit. Don't come in there with like a big stack of articles and be like, I've been looking at WebMD and I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> no, we don't like that. But, but no, Dr. Google. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, dick pics. So, one of the questions we got was about curly penile papules. And it, it, why would you say touch on them? But um, <laughs> to, this guy wants us to touch on his curly penile papules. Um, so, no, we have nitrile or latex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, should be part of everyone's safety kit. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a question we haven't gotten before, and I thought this is, you know, it's a valid question, because some people will will see this and think, oh, crap, this person has genital warts. Uh, So, when I'm doing my my dermatology, infectious disease dermatology, um, telling someone is one thing, but showing them the images, going to, like, Google image search and be like, is this what you have? And they're like, that is what I have. I think that that's handy. So, um... There is some website, I think it's for surgery, for, for pearly penile papules versus HSV. There's what, a lot of variation of genitals, and not all of them are diseased. Right, right. So pearly penile papules are benign. They're not, a, they're not an STD. It, some people believe it was act, it's actually this remnant of the penile spine, which is kind of interesting that they were these pleasure bumps that made it so that you would ejaculate faster. So it had some sort of evolutionary advantage, but... 
When you look at how many people actually have this, the studies vary greatly. Somewhere between 8% to upwards of just below 40% of men will have these pearly penile papules, okay? And they tend to come in rows. They tend, they tend to be on the um, uh, corona of the penis, as you can see there. They're not painful. They, for, you can get them removed. So what's the corona? Right, the crown, the head ah. area. So that, that's what they're showing there. You can get them surgically removed if they cause you great mental anguish. And the way that they do this is a carbon dioxide laser tends to be the most commonly used one, but the procedure is about $3,000. Uh, to the left there, you have HPV. Um, so it's important to be able to make this distinction. So HPV tends to have this raised cauliflower look to it. And they tend to be in larger uh, single groups or rather than these sort of rows of multiple bumps. So this is one of those things that, to address this question, you really need to see it. That's why I brought the laptop, to just kind of show you this. What do you do for genital warts? You, is it laser also? Uh, genital warts, you can have lasered off, yeah, but you don't get rid of the virus necessarily. Right. And so they can come Actually. back, same place or nearby. Just like regular hand warts or anything. Oh, okay. HPV is starting to get linked with a whole bunch of stuff, and that's what genital warts comes from, um, as well as cervical can a lot of cervical cancers and things like that. Yeah. All right, so we talked about PrEP drugs a little bit already. This person, Raider, you can turn around. There you go. Asked a lot of questions, and they're excellent questions. So a lot of them were dealing with Wound care, also infection risks with blood splattering, so aerosolized blood. So one of the things Peggy has in her bag is uh, safety goggles, which is an excellent thing to have in any sort of kit. If you Baby think that there is a, might fly. Yeah, if you if you think that <laughs> or there, splash. Yeah, there is a potential risk that you can get blood in mucous membranes, i.e. eyes. It's a good idea to wear safety goggles and hell. I, I, and my, then you get the geek cred out the wazoo. My eyes are magnets. Showing up to the sex thing. Magnets for bleach. <laughs> I don't know how it keeps happening, but every time I like, or it lie. Uh, so a lot of these cleaners you could potentially splash in your face, which is a bad, that will ruin your scene. Let me tell you. Uh, lie in someone's eye is not a fun thing. Anything uh, in your eye, flush, 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 lots of water. Oh yeah, and potentially see an ophthalmologist. Sharps play in breasts, hands, feet, and faces. The risks related to sharps play in hematomas. Uh, so remember, no activity is without significant risk. And no, knowing anatomy is helpful, uh, but everything you do involves some sort of risk, so you want to mitigate it as much as possible. One of the things in here, uh, I'm not sure we entirely addressed, is uh, using skin prep beforehand. Um, Personal preference for chlorhexidine, uh, just because I use it more frequently. Uh, you can buy them in these wands. Uh, that's what I recommend doing. Which, which are you can... sponge sticks with it. Yeah. So you can throw a few of these in, in your toy bag. And what they are is they look like little glow sticks with a sponge on the end. Uh, you break the chlorhexidine inside, shake it up, and then apply it. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Right, exactly. Making sure that you're giving it a good five minutes to completely dry and then... At that point, you know, you can do needles or cutting. Try to keep it relatively superficial if you're going to be doing cut, cutting. And if you can, consult your anatomy textbook. Look for Anything like a hematoma, uh, anything under pressure can squirt when opened. So Yeah, so keep that in mind. <laughs> Just yeah. fluids tend to <coughs> and, go places and when say, pressure is released. We say this every time, but take a medical history before you're going to get into any of these things. Find out if people are on blood thinners, if they're taking warfarin. Now, if someone is on blood thinners and you're doing something, the thing is, if they start bleeding, you have to hold pressure longer. Right, so making sure to you make have plenty stop. of nitrile gloves, things on hand, um, to avoid or potential clot. exposure to yourself. Quick clot is a beautiful thing. For small. For small, For small. clots. Yeah. There is something in her box that we don't know what this is, and it has no ingredients. Maybe someone can tell so us So one of the things is. I found interesting when I was trying to look up, <laughs> look up and pull out bits and 
probably Ben's account. I think it's Is that right? Most likely. But one of the things I found when it I was... It says comfortably numb. I wonder if Pink Floyd, like, <laughs> gave them... <laughs> did Pink Floyd give them permission to use so, that on their packaging? They should brand that. <laughs> one of the things I found when meant. I was trying to look up everything about all the chemicals involved in sex stuff is that the lubrication in condoms and some of the lubricants you can buy separately don't always list ingredients. So if you have someone with a lot of skin reactions to things, that might get real interesting. Yes, and checking to make sure that your lubricant is condom safe, as still, in this day, not all of them are, such as this bottle of boy butter is not Which a lot of people... Like for anal, because it it's, stays lubricated longer, mm-hmm. it's silicone and coconut oil. And anything right. oil-based, you cannot use latex. Right. It weakens the latex, anything so, oil-based. Absolutely. What about the polyester? Yeah, those, I, I was going to test that. You can still do that um, with the oil-based. Right. There's a lot of different textures. And if anyone wants to see what some of these textures are, feel free to see me afterwards. Yeah. And we'll squirt some lube on you. <laughs> Generally on your forearms with a top. Oh, Red are fun. Yes. The Noxinol mine that's typically used as a spermicide yes. can cause irritation to some people. Are there lubes that disable that? Not disable the irritation? Not no, disable. disable the there spermicide. Are, there are lubes without spermicide. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's either there or it's not. Yeah. Spermicides aren't really that effective, especially like the non-oxal nine covered condoms are not that much more effective than traditional condoms anyway. You might as well get them without it. They seem to be falling out of favor. Um, but especially like I have a lot of skin sensitivities. Um, so all these non-labeled <clears throat> lubricants can be problematic. Give us some crazy questions, guys. One of the other questions we got was about hemorrhoids. Yes. Um, Obesity Everyone has increases <laughs> risk of hemorrhoids, um, and any receptive anal sex increases risk of hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids are one of those things to where it is a risk. Most people are willing to accept that risk because hemorrhoids can be treated. But I will say in the I just got one phase, they're mighty uncomfortable for people. So that's something you want to ask about. It can also increase bleeding um, during any anal stuff, so Mm -hmm. if you're worried about blood exposure, that does change a little bit about what you're worried about. Um, So, it depends on where it is, on how painful it'll be, um, how close to the outside or inside, um, and how big they are on how much it might block things and cause you problems with bowel movements. Um, So, in general, if you have (coughs) anal sex... It does increase your risk. Most people, that's not going to change what they plan to do, but it is something to be aware of. Um, what are some of the risks associated with using poppers? Oh, you looked at me like I know. Yeah, they, <laughs> they're not popular in my area. Hold on. <laughs> Let me pull up my uh, my. Uh, yeah, I have I have LexiComp on here. Poppers. <laughs> Video head cleaner. Uh, let's see. Oh, I, I know. I believe without looking, I'm like, oh, come on, get this right. Drops in blood pressure is going to be the big one. So, one second. Let me look at adverse events here. Don't take on Cialis. <laughs> hey, I'm right. So, um, the the biggest thing is yes, drop, drops in blood pressure. Uh, so when you look at, when you look at this, the the main all of the things that are bad that come from using amyl nitrates happen because of the drops in blood pressure. Uh, so don't use if you're pregnant, uh, because it will potentially kill your fetus. Unless you want that. Uh, but strokes is one of the big things. So um, you can get cerebral ischemia from having those drops in blood pressure, which is why, uh, amazingly, in the biograd they don't say you know if you're taking. They say if you're taking anything else that could lower your blood pressure, they should say poppers. <laughs> if you're taking amyl nitrate, hot sex. But if you notice, those commercials are pretty much only involving heterosexual couples. So. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the main thing is, yeah, decreased blood pressure. There are a lot of consequences from that. So recreational use, we do. 
necessarily think. It's and if you're ever in a scene with someone and they start to get lightheaded just because of the intensity of the scene and start seeming like they're about to pass out, mm-hmm. things like getting them flat um, and drinking ice cold water can calm down that vagal tone yeah. um, that that I'm about to pass out kind of reaction um, is it's the vagus nerve that goes down the throat. So sometimes ice cold water can kind of trick that reaction to where someone who feels like they're about to pass out feels a little bit better. Yeah. So I've seen that help some scenes not have to completely stop. Sure. And then, you know, we need to make this distinction because we talked about it a couple of years ago and the people who listened to the previous podcast, I think had some questions about it is... I usually lose my shit when people talk about breath play. I'm like, oh, it's so dangerous. Don't do it. Um, I, I should have clarified the difference between breath play and choking play. So, you know, there, there is a marked difference between the two. If you are choking someone, you are, run, you are definitely running the risk of them getting cerebral ischemia and potentially having a stroke. There's other things that you can do. Remember, nothing is safe. That's the most important takeaway thing from here. But you can potentially like occlude their mouth, for example, which would be you produce the same effect, but you're not really having the same high risk of getting a stroke from that. So, um, The other thing is always avoiding this area um, because anything affecting the carotid arteries not only affects blood going to the brain, but can also change your heart rhythm. And generally, you don't want to mess with heart rhythm in sex. <laughs> heart rate may be a little bit, go fast, go slow, but not heart rhythm. So that's a no-go for pretty much everyone. That could induce a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that can do permanent damage that you really can't explain to the EMS and the cops. Or, or prolong your heart to stops. So. Or break it's off the best back. way to die. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's no multiple ways to yeah. die with massage here or pressure here. So, if you ever learn to check for a carotid artery, that's what we're talking about for a pulse. What other questions do you guys have for us? It's a quiet group this year. That's a lot to take in. I know it's a lot to take in. Just breathe deep. Um, any other non kink related things that we can talk to them about? Any updates? It will probably be a long time before it's ever on the U.S. market. It's being used more frequently uh, overseas. Um, But basically, uh, female Viagra, just like male Viagra, increases blood flow to the genitals. Some people think that enhances the experience, but there hasn't been a ton of research to say for sure one way or another. Um, But there's a lot of people use it... Not an FDA-approved indication, um, but basically it increases blood flow to the clitoris just like it would to the penis. Increased blood flow for some people can increase sensation and kind of get things going. Cool. Another important thing to know, too, is free, almost always HIV, but other STD testing is available at non-health department locations. There's usually foundations in any major city, like here we have positive impact, and um, so if you want to get free or low-cost health testing, um, testing if you don't have insurance, but you don't want to necessarily go through the health department, there are other avenues. And if you want to pay more for it, pretty much all the independent labs that would do drug screens for works will also sell you testing for sexually transmitted infections or cholesterol or anything else mm-hmm. without seeing anyone. And by the way, everyone here... Should be getting influenza vaccine. Does it? Who here has gotten the influenza vaccine in the last year? Who yes. yes, has. I have. Yay! Everyone in this room should be getting it. Remember, there. You got it. Okay, cool. So we're we're getting it. So especially since we may be in close proximity with multiple other people, big part of what we do is prevention. Keep other people safe. So uh, getting the flu shot not only helps you, but it also will help those you may play with or people you may be in the same dungeon with or party with because we have exposure to so many people it's probably a pretty good idea to do that oh and something new actually this year uh, from last year is meningitis vaccine so meningitis vaccine has been around for a while and we've been using it for a while but it has it has a new indication so uh, in 
HIV positive men who have sex with men. So CDC is now recommending that we do meningitis vaccine. So if that applies to you, that may be something you want to consider. There was an outbreak uh, in California. Uh, it was a little over a year ago. Now, there are two different types of meningitis vaccine, uh, making this somewhat confusing. There's uh, one type that covers four strains, and there is another type that covers a single strain. Uh, and when you see outbreaks, they tend to be the one that's covered in the vaccine that has the single strain in it. And the recommendation is to get the one that has four. Uh, but it's a, it's a two-dose series, and it lasts for five years. So, you know, important vaccinations to get if you're in the scene would be getting your annual flu shot. HPV vaccine, if you can get it paid for and you're under the age of 26, typically will be paid for. Meningitis vaccine, if you're HIV positive and have sex with men. What about the side effects for that, um, that shot that you wanted to get before you 26? It vaccine. has one of the lowest side effect, yeah. one of the best side effect profiles of any vaccination because it came out after there was the whole movement against vaccinations, so they knew that they were going to have to face criticism. So it's one of the best studied, least side effect vaccines that has ever been created. Sure. So, I mean, localized arm soreness. Um, so all, all vaccines sort of work in a similar fashion that they promote an immune response, right? There's nothing really magical about that. So you're going to have some localized redness, some soreness, um, nothing like, you know, a night at seating or anything like that, and uh, possibly low-grade temperatures, and then just tell patients to take Tylenol, and if there's something more serious that happens, let me know. It's, and it's and possible, if you've had past reactions, unlikely. just talk to your doc about whether that's a, a risky type reaction or a normal <coughs> type reaction to previous vaccines. Yeah. How, how many of you have egg allergies? One person. There's always one. Okay. Do you get a flu shot? I get that special one that doesn't have the Yeah. For a long time, yeah, so uh, you're always warned of an a flu shot because of an egg allergy, but they've reduced the amount of egg protein in the flu shot so much that even if you do have an egg allergy, you're probably okay with the standard one at this point. I have no reaction to it. Exactly, with the standard vaccine, yeah. So it's it, they've driven that number. So some people will not get it for that reason. And if you're super concerned about it, there's what they call um, the cell-free ones that you can get, but honestly, you can get a regular vaccine. Most people will tolerate it fine. Oh, one more thing. This this could save your life. It's not really so much with... By the way. By the way, last thing is you're walking out the door. How many of you guys have antibiotic allergies or a penicillin allergy? Okay, one, two, three. Okay, so that's, for the listeners at home, that's like three out of 30, which is, okay, pretty high. Um, when What was your allergy, if you don't mind me asking? Sulfur drug? Penicillin. Oh, let's penicillin. go. Let's just go. Penicillin. Are you allergic to sulfur? I'm allergic to sulfur. Yeah. I don't know what the reaction is. Right. So that's so this is important. So before I was born, as someone who deals with aller antibiotic allergies, and if you come to the hospital and you're unconscious, and they see in your profile that you have an allergy to penicillin or these other medications, it really limits what we can use for you. Many of these reactions are childhood reactions, or they were told by their mom or something. They're like, you had a rash when you were a baby. The allergies will wane over time. You know, sometimes it, it's actually beneficial to get, if you're very concerned, especially if you're in that group that had anaphylaxis or, you know, your throat was closing off, um, you can do uh, penicillin allergy <coughs> testing. And, and this involves, oh, okay. yeah, so what, what this is, it's like skin testing. So there's something you can get called a pre-pen, and it is a, basically a small, a small dose of penicillin that you can inject. Uh, and then if you're not developing a rash or some sort of uh, reaction to that, they can do what's called a oral challenge. It sounds hotter than it is. Um, <laughs> or they give you an oral version of it. And then also keep in mind that with penicillin allergies, there's, there's different groups on the end, different side chains. So you may have, you may have a reaction to one penicillin family drug, but not others. So having antibiotic allergies, um, potentially taken off your profile can be very helpful in case you do need antibiotics that would save your life. Down the road. In this day and age of resistance and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been since I was like three. Right, right. So. And that's 50 years ago. Yeah, so that may be something... <laughs> yeah, you may want to talk to your physician about saying, or yeah. um, 
say, look, I want to be checked to see if I actually have a penicillin allergy. Um, and that, that goes with other drugs, too. Um, sulfonamides, um, that's what people classify as a sulfa-allergy. Um, you could do this, a similar thing to see if, if the response is real. So. so if you have any other questions while you're here, feel free to stop us and ask yes, us. Yes, you can find us on, on Pet Life. Because um, we do this because we enjoy getting geeky. Yeah. We love hearing your questions. We're like, what new things are there out there? What? Uh, we're also doing science of subspace. So some of the physiology type changes and things like that. So ne- Never been done by us or at Frolicon. Are right, you going to try and get the girl to squirt? We will try. <laughs> hey, so, at least oh, you can come and the fir- get the first couple. The first couple rows will have a splash zone. It's like it's like Sea World. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you got safety goggles. Yeah, that was the single clap there. I like it. It was like an amp- everyone timed their clap. Just go one, two, three. Yay! So yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, come come to our class tomorrow um, on the science of subspace. It's very sciencey. That's all I gotta say. You're, you're, there's so much science happening. There's so much science happening. Should be squirting. Yeah, there's you're, you'll be squirting from all that science. <laughs> okay. Well, cool. Thank you guys for coming. You have been listening to episode 171 of the Kinky Cast. For more information about this show, go to kinkycast.com. The Kinky Cast is a production of Rooster in the Round. On behalf of all our Kinky crew, I'm Max. See you next week when we present Guild Girl, title holder from Toledo, Ohio.